Welcome to another episode of When Russia is Your Neighbor, a podcast that only repetitive because Russia has been repetitive for the last 500 years. It's funny because you think that if you would look closer, you would find more differences, but you actually end up finding way more similarities. Sure. I'm Tanya. I'm Roman. Last time, we talked about the series of genocides that Russia has been committing against the three Hanates, shards of the Golden Horde, with Crimean Hanate being the last one standing in the middle of 16th century. That is correct. And our body, Ivan the So-So. Ivan the So-So? Yeah, I think like terrible, Ivan the Terrible would sound repetitive, so he's going to get different nicknames from me every time we talk about him. Uh, so yeah, our buddy Ivan the Soso <laughs> did try to complete his collection of uh, genocided Hanates. Yeah, I'm still thinking that Soso really maybe Ivan the Ew. We have that one coming. Okay. He did try to invade Crimean Hanat, but here's the problem: as we discussed, Crimea is a peninsula, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And the only connection to the mainland that it has is on the north. Mm-hmm. Now, Russia has no access to that land. That land is controlled by the Union of Poland and Lithuania. Ivan tried to convince the Duke of Lithuania, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, coincidentally also the King of Poland, to join forces and go against the Crimean Tatars on the grounds of shared faith. Right. Yeah, driving the argument that Catholics and Orthodoxes should join forces in defeating the real enemy, the Muslims. Yeah. Yeah, this, it's it's incredibly funny considering he's been like allies. His father has been allies with Muslims against the Catholics. And now suddenly he wants Catholics to join him in defeating Muslims. Uh, yeah, yeah, what is interesting is that still Golden Horde and all other Hanates, they were fine with Orthodox Christians. And they were pretty tolerant. But look, Russia is not. They just like they are Muslims. They have different faiths. So it's just a pretext, basically, to invade. You're completely correct. Like, as we will see later in the episode, Russia doesn't care about the faith of the people that they commit genocide against. Anyway, Lithuania had no interest in military campaigns whatsoever. They had even less interest in being allies with Russia, who went to war with them basically every other year in the past 40 years. So a couple of years ago, we were foes, like enemies. We were in war, and now you're trying to explain me the importance of being in the Union just because we have quote-unquote common foe, which is not actually a foe. <laughs> yes, yes, but what, what Ivan tried to leverage heavily is that Crimean Hanat was essentially a vassal of the Ottoman Empire. Right. And Ottoman Empire did not really keep them in check all that well. Mm-hmm. Crimean Hanat did raid the lands of Poland-Lithuania quite a lot. Mm-hmm. They would did not try to conquer it or stay there, but occasionally would raid for resources and like kill people, which is, I mean, yeah, yeah but, 16th century mm, still happens. They did the same thing uh, with Moscow lands. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can see a common ground. I think uh, Poland-Lithuania was pretty fine deflecting these attacks by itself. <laughs> Yeah, and and don't forget, if you're Lithuania at this point, you're being told that your main enemy is Crimean Tatars in your south that occasionally raid a village or two. But you're told so by people who captured 
a city 40 years ago, the city of Pskov, that is still under Russian rule. Regardless, Ivan's efforts are not completely in vain. What he ended up doing is supporting a man named Mitrovich Nevetsky. To gather up militia in the southeast of the kingdom, along the Dnipro River, and raid Crimea. So, who is Dmitro Vishnevetsky? At that point, pretty much nobody. Like, he's a nobleman of, like, a very low-level nobility mm-hmm. in, in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. He has some lands. Yeah, but there's a difference, because landowners in Russia, they cannot act against the Tsar, yeah. right? But in Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth, landowners are pretty independent. Yes, that is true. And you will see the side effect of that mm-hmm. immediately. So he gathers up militia, consists mostly of people from like the areas that did suffer from the Crimean raids. Uh-huh. They are also mostly peasants who are not very happy with the rule of uh, Poland-Lithuania over them. Okay. They are serfs who escaped their masters, their mm-hmm. landowners. And uh, this militia does several raids onto Crimean lands mm-hmm. and basically pushes the Crimean Tatars all the way down to the peninsula, completely removing them from uh, the mainland. So people just try to basically defend their own land. Yes, that is more or less uh, what happened. So you can see that they're pretty well motivated themselves. Mm -hmm. Ivan's role in this is that it seems that he provided the arms. Hmm. So he arms this little militia. And after these successful raids, uh, the militia decides to not go back under the Polish rule. They stay on an island named Hortica on the Dnipro River. Oh, are they Cossacks? They are Cossacks. They form, uh, well, technically speaking, Cossacks existed at this point. Like, it was Mm -hmm. like these bandits. But now with the leadership of Vishnevetsky and with the arms from Russia, they form the first Zaporozhka siege. Isn't that ironic? That is very ironic. So... To give those of our listeners a glimpse into what uh, Kazachistvo was or Zaporozhka siege was, they based on islands on the Dnipro River, which are really, really hard to capture unless you're already there. They were people who were not satisfied with the amounts of freedom that the Grand Duchy of Lithuania provided to like the regular folks, which was not a lot, but it was way more than you got in in Russia. Mm -hmm. Uh, They accepted to their ranks basically anybody who was seeking freedom for any kind of tyranny. Their self-government was based on principles of complete equality, with each regiment, Kurin, electing their own leader. And every person from their regiment was eligible to nominate themselves when the election time came. From the Kurin leaders... Aramans, they would elect Hetman, essentially their president slash general. They had a very curious um, army slash civil structure because it was basically militia, but they had to live their lives. They had to produce resources somewhere. And there's a lot of interesting things about them. But regardless, 
First gateman to ever be elected is Dmitro Vishnevetsky mm-hmm. in 1552. And unlike the elected kings of the European states of the time, Hetman had to have his title confirmed every year at the gathering called Vecha, which is uh, how they continued to call their elective process. Wow. The <laughs> Yeah. Hetman had a symbol of power. Mm-hmm. Do you know what symbol of power Hetman had? Um, not really, no. It wasn't a crown. It was a weapon, namely a mace. Which is a symbol of Ukraine right now. Yes, Bulava is still one of the symbols of Ukrainian presidency. And when Ukrainian president is sworn into power, he wields the Bulava, the mace. Yeah. Yeah, all of that in 1550. 1550. And um, Cossacks are not going to live long in terms of like political structure, mm-hmm. but... They will fall to the Russian hands, but that's going to happen over 200 years from Mm -hmm, this point. mm -hmm. Before they do, they will be a huge thorn in the side for literally everybody around them. Yeah, yeah. I remember that they were a huge thorn in a shoe of Ottoman Empire. (laughs) That's for sure. Ottoman Empire, Russian Empire as well. The, The biggest problem literally everybody around them had is because... They are surrounded with feudalic powers. Yeah, with and monarchies. they want them to be under them. Of course, right? they, they, they also occupy those Cossacks. They just really want democracy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's to li- be free. They would accept slaves, former slaves. A lot of Cossacks were former slaves or former serfs, or basically people who escaped imp- imprisonment. Yeah, like anything. What about women, though? They did have women. Mm-hmm. The women would not be accepted into military, Mm -hmm. but women would essentially curate the hooters where they would live. So it's essentially the civil part of the siege. Mm -hmm. Farms, crafts, because it it was kind of like Sparta, you know, in the sense that... (laughs) Uh, do you remember that moment? Did they throw somebody into the well? No, 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 that's not what I meant. Um, do you remember that moment in 300 where Leonidas asks another army, the, the army that joined them, the reinforcements, is like, who did you bring? And he he asks, and the guy goes like, I'm a potter. I am a blacksmith. Uh-huh. I am someone else. And then he turns around and he asks his Spartans, who were they? And all of them responded, warriors. That's pretty much what Cossacks were. They all had occupations outside Mm -hmm. but their main thing was Mm -hmm. that they were fighters they were a militia they were freedom fighters essentially after raids that would happen against the lithuanian villages they would raid crimean tatars intercept them and free the enslaved people and would essentially like a lot of them would just enlist so you can see how this becomes problematic for monarchies around it. Yeah, literally like, for <laughs> anybody, because all around them are only monarchies. Yeah. 
Yeah, such blatant promotion of uh, human like, rights is not responsible in 1550s. Yeah, though no, that's uh, mm-hmm. that that is true. Yeah, and uh, what struck me is that this interesting thing that this first successful military operation that they conduct, and namely freeing the southern Dnipro from Crimean occupation was done <laughs> with the help of Ivan the Force providing um, guns and, and armaments. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> it's, it's, it's extremely ironic. Yeah. Um, Russia is it's going to take Russia 200 years to deal with the, with the consequences of this section. One would say that they deal with it right now. It's true. That, like A lot of historians consider Cossacks to be the foundation for Ukrainian self-government. I mean, a lot of Ukrainians think that because that's kind of what it is. It's the first uh, self-governed society formed on the lands of Ukraine, which, thank you for reminding me, is now indeed called Ukraine. It's based on the way people talk about it. You know, cry Mm -hmm. in Ukrainian means basically land. Mm-hmm. And they... it's not just in Ukrainian, it's pretty much in Belarusian for 100%. Even in Russian, I think it has this. I mean, occasionally, yeah. Occasionally. In, in, in... It, has many, it has many meanings in Russian, but in Ukrainian, I think, and in Belarusian, it means exactly the land. Yes, it's, it's the land. And Russia has been trying for a long time to kind of make it sound that. Oh, Ukraine, Ukraina sounds like Ukraina, uh, but no. But is... if you, from the point of view of Ukrainian language and Belarusian language, it means in land. Exactly, that's that's true. Ukraina means in the land. I live in my land, yeah. essentially. And the self name of the people who live there, the ethnicities, essentially, is Ukrainci. We live in the land, people in the land. Same as with Belarusians calling yeah. themselves Tutayshi. Ukraina, it's a country in Belarusian and Ukrainian. Yeah. yeah. And so with, with Polish too. With Polish too. It's, it's only Russia is like the outlier here. Because like, yeah. they just, yeah. So if you're listening to us now, you probably know that U.S. are giving weapons to Ukraine right now. So... Be sure they will be developing democracy. Like, they are trying for 500 years to make this democracy. And they will be doing, they will be trying to do this right now. Don't it's, worry, everything is fine. It's, it's true. Give Russia weapons and they will commit genocide. Give Ukrainian weapons and they will build democracy. Yeah, so Ivan's, <laughs> Ivan's effort don't produce much other than, well the rise of Cossacks. He's still kind of busy committing genocide in Kazan with Astrakhan on deck mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. So he kind of lays off Crimean Tatars for a while. But while all that is happening, Livonia is starting to turn in a direction they never should have. Livonia is the territory that is contemporary Estonia and Latvia. Yes, that is correct. They are, to remind our listeners, are slightly weird in the sense that they are not technically speaking part of any kingdom. It's a land controlled by the knights' order, the mm-hmm. Livonian knights. They have a grandmaster, an elected position. They do have nobility. They live by some set of rules. 
but they're not technically part of any monarchy. I would prefer to be ruled over by a grandmaster. Well, you're about to think again. <laughs> okay. Due to the special status and the location where they are, mm-hmm. and they are at the very, very end of the Baltic Sea, where it kind of like stretches into the Gulf of Finland. Mm-hmm. So they are the last piece of land between Russia and the Baltic Sea. Oh, and God. A lot neighbors. Of, yes. A lot of merchants, like small, smaller merchants, do go through them. Mm-hmm. But the trade is heavily regulated. It's kind of understandable because their territory is pretty much on the north. They cannot grow anything for export. I think they just can't sustain themselves. And this is how they earn for their living. Yeah. They're taxing every merchant that goes through their lands. That is true. And take the percent of the money this merchant has. That is true. And if uh, Russia were to decide to just route all their trade with the rest of Europe, specifically England in mm-hmm. that in this scenario, because it's kind of the shortest route if they wanted to ever mm, trade with mm-hmm. them, Livonia would have been would have had a lot of money. But Russia doesn't really want to do that because, first of all, they don't want to pay taxes. And Why just, would they? And secondly, d- despite Livonians being very loyal to Russians, they allow Russian merchants to travel through their land. They allow Russian craftsmen to settle in their cities. So much so that in the city of Dorpat, there was an Orthodox church. Uh, Dorpat is now the city of Tartu in Estonia. That church is still standing, interestingly <laughs> enough. But slightly more important than that, the grandmaster of the time exercises a policy of very narrow navigation between Sweden and Denmark and Poland-Lithuania and Russia. He seems to be earning this position of being the singular trade point between Russia and the West. Russia doesn't see it that way. The more Russian interests are advanced in the territory, the more Russia wants, Russia wants to get their hands on the territory. Because why would you pay taxes if you can conquer the land and not pay taxes? Because it would be your land. First of all, that. And secondly, what are you going to do if you're not even part of any real kingdom? So what happens is Russia suddenly produces a claim that the land is actually theirs. And Livonian order has been allowed to live there. To exist. Exactly. They are trying to force Livonia to pay taxes and tributes, essentially, to them for living on the land. Uh, The claim is very weird because, for comparison, the city of Pskov, which is the closest city to Dorpat that Russia controls at this point, has only been Russian for 40 years. Uh People of Dorpat probably, like, how are we living on Russian land when that thing only became Russian land like 40 years ago? Like, mm-hmm. they don't really get that. But um, Ivan really abuses the fact that he's like the last Rurikite. Yeah, that's the whole thing that I'm he does. I'm rolling my eyes right now. Yeah, because... she does. <sighs> so, yeah, uh, Livonians get a little like surprised because like, oh, we're trying to like be very generous with you by trying to make all these moves and now you suddenly want more when have that ever happened with Russia when people try to appease them and then Russia just demands more. 
So what happens is uh, they're trying to appease Russia further by allowing merchants to so essentially they're lifting all the, mistake. all the restrictions. The only restrictions remaining is Livonia would not sell armaments to Russia. They would not allow the transfer of armaments from other countries to Russia through their land. So I think what's important to note at this point that England was an exporter of weapons. That was one of the main reasons why Russia wanted access to armaments import so much. Yeah, because they cannot produce their own armaments. Yeah, it's funny because, like I said, the further you look into this, the more details you find that are just completely similar and unchanged yeah, and between 1550 and now. It is funny that Livonia and Poland, Lithuania are literally begging not to sell armaments to Russia, but England does it anyway. England does it anyway. Essentially, what they do is um, th there's a guy who traces the northern seas, an incredibly dangerous route, even in summer, and completely impossible in the winter when the seas are just completely ice-locked. And he does manage to reach the White Sea, a port that's named St. Nicholas. Is this a port I couldn't even find anymore? I, I assume it's probably the modern city of Arhangelsk or somewhere in that area. But the point is, an English trading vessel gets access to Russia directly. And England is like, fuck yeah, let's sell guns to them. And Livonia and Poland, Lithuania were like, oh no. They probably were, but you know who were more concerned with that? Who? Sweden. Of all the kingdoms, Sweden was the most sensible one. Uh, the perspective that Russia is going to be armed with modern guns was so alarming to them that they attempted to form an alliance with Denmark, Livonia, and Poland-Lithuania and warn everybody that Russia is eyeing one of them for their next vicious conquest. The most vulnerable of them all is, of course, Livonia. And it is Livonia that rejects the offer. Can you guess why they rejected the offer? They probably wanted to stay independent. The offer didn't have any any propositions of like, hey, join us. It was just for a military huh. alliance. Hmm. Well, Livonia's argument was that they do not want to provoke a Russia by joining this alliance. Tell me if you've heard that before. <sighs> I mean, they did. Fucking NATO. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people said that Ukrainians did not want to join NATO to not uh, provoke, provoke Russia. Russia. Um, yeah, well... Also, Ukraine and all people from all nations of Eastern Europe asked not trade with Russia, please do sanctions. They did the same thing in 1550s, apparently. They yeah. asked England not to trade with Russia because Russia is dangerous. They are fucking crazy. Please don't give them guns. Yeah, exactly. Because here's what happens. Everybody around Russia sees Russia basically use whatever the, they like had to squash canates. But canates are just shards of golden horde of Mongolian Empire. They're not well equipped. They're not wealthy. Uh, they don't have massive fortress. Their military is mostly cavalry. The European powers do. They have castles. They have artillery at mass. And so the fact that Russia is trying to buy guns 
modern guns, modern artillery, which is most important, means to them that they are about to go to war with somebody who can actually protect themselves. Yeah, because like Eastern Europe looks at Russia at all tortures, at all wars they're waging, at all stuff they do, and they're like, they are savages, please don't give them guns. And Westerners were like, oh, what a mysterious Russian soul. Yeah, uh, Mysterious Russian Soul does take offense in the attempt by the Swedish to form the alliance. They kind of sort of attack Sweden, but the clashes are not indicative of any serious military action. Mm. It seems that they were just trying to force King Gustav to negotiations. Interestingly enough, Ivan the piece of shit considered Gustav the elected king to be barely a monarch at all because he didn't have this nice document that tied him to the Caesars, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, it didn't stop Ivan from signing a truce with Sweden. Uh, The truce was meant to last for 40 years. According to that truce, Sweden agreed not to aid Livonia or Poland-Lithuania if either of them were to go to war with Russia. (laughs) And, like, anyone with half a brain would see where this is going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) So the truce is signed in 1557. The trading company is supplying Russia with English-made guns. No! Please! (laughs) God! No! The funniest is what Elizabeth gets in return, Queen Elizabeth. It's mostly furs from, like, What, England doesn't have furs? Well, not enough of them. But to be perfectly fair, I think it's kind of, like, understandable because at that time, colonization of Canada starts... And, like, they equipped lots of expeditions uh, to go to places. Maybe that's the reason. But Russia doesn't really have a lot of other things to offer. They literally just offer expedition supplies at that point. So, (sighs) yeah. It's funny because the deal is so blatantly offensive to the peace in Europe that Emperor Ferdinand of the Holy Roman Empire... When, when meeting with Queen Elizabeth, is trying to dissuade her from selling weaponry to Russia. Pretty much pointing at the two exterminated Hanats. I don't really think Queen Elizabeth gave a shit, to be perfectly fair. Uh, obviously not. But uh, yeah, it's, it's funny how much the situation is similar to what's happening right now. The roles are slightly different. Now it's everybody's like telling Germany to stop trading with Russia. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, Russia, essentially Russia managed to arm themselves. And that's bad news for everybody around them. Yeah. Ivan already secured that Sweden would not join the war on the Livonian side. Yeah. Not, Sweden doesn't join NATO. Yeah. There, there's no alliance. There's no NATO yet. But No um, NATO. I think... Ivan would really would have preferred to isolate both Sweden and Poland-Lithuania from, mm-hmm. from the sides of conflict and just deal with Livonia. But that's not what happens. As I said, after the treaty he signed, the drunkest bastard in any of the countries would be like, oh, they're about to take Livonia. And so Livonians understand that easier as well. Essentially, one of the reasons why Poland-Lithuania is so into this is because Ivan still has these claims over Kyiv and essentially Ukraine. Yeah, and they understand... Those claims from 250 years ago. A little over that, like 300 years. Yeah, like 300, like nobody gives a shit. Yeah, they're very dated. 
Ivan IV gives all the shits. Yeah, Poland-Lithuania really doesn't want that Russia had a port that doesn't freeze in winter and that doesn't and a trade route with England that doesn't yeah, sink three out England of four. Yeah, and England fueling uh, yeah. Russia with armor and weapons. Yeah, Poland and Lithuania understands that if they capture the uh, Baltic ports and uh, end up increasing the import of weaponry, then Poland-Lithuania is next. So in the fall of the same year, 1557, Livonia does form an alliance with Poland-Lithuania. Uh-huh. Ivan, the absolute fucking worst, decides to strike before Poland can prepare any meaningful reinforcements. The war starts in January 1558. Ivan pulls in the armies from the east, where they had just completed the genocide of Kazan and Osterheim. And to give you an understanding... Narva, the port they're trying to capture, is about 800 miles from Kazan and over 1,200 miles from Astrahan. So it's a huge march for the armies. That's like from Miami to Boston or something. Like, it's it's a long travel. Mm -hmm. The armies he pulls in is, like, mostly Tatars. Yeah, it's it's, uh, just Russian things. They never fight with Russian troops. I'm rolling my eyes because same shit happens right now. Like, our yeah. podcast becomes more boring with each episode. Because, because like, every... The same thing are all over again. I don't know, like, guys, if you're listening to us and if you're interested in some subject, please tell us. So far, we're doing <laughs> genocides and it's pretty repetitive. And Russia is not even an empire yet. Um, anyway... Uh, So so the campaign starts relatively successfully. Uh, By May, Russia does take the port of Narva, and they try to immediately use it to establish a trade route with Europe. And this is like the dumbest thing ever, because if you look at the map, first of all, they don't have a fleet in the area. But they're like, yeah, sure, let's start trading. And then every ship that goes there, it has to go through the Swedish and Danish waters. Livonians that still have several more ports in the area are basically like, we're just going to intercept these ships. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. They just open up privateering and they're just taking every ship that's trying to uh, go through the area. So like good planning on, on the part of Ivan the Force. That's like, that's how you do it. Well, Russia does continue uh, by capturing the Dorpat or liberating it in the w- in the terms that Russia would put mm-hmm. it, because there were some Russians there already. Their Casus Valley was actually that the Orthodox Church in Dorpat has been defaced. <laughs> anyway, so as That's soon just for chronicles, because of course, yes. if you don't put in chronicles the Casus Valley, you're basically a terrorist nation. Well, yeah. okay. So um, Russia captures one port that they need and one city. Can you guess what they do right after that? Genocide in all local population? Funnily enough, for the first time, no. They're trying to, and I think that has to do with uh, Ivan's advisors. Some of them are actually, like, has their ties with Lithuania and everything. Okay. Uh, who are like, yeah, yeah, we're just going to, like, run some propaganda, tell them that this has always been Russian land and they're going to accept you as their czar. That's not what they're trying to do. Uh, they're immediately open up for peace negotiations. So uh, the reason why they do that is if they sign the peace treaty right now, Livonia would not be able to intercept the trade vessels. 
So right. they're trying to immediately protect this one route that they have to bring also in more armaments. Be, yeah, also they want to be demolished by Poland, Lithuania. Technically speaking, Poland is already in. Uh, like the, their army is already fighting in Lithuania or Lithuanian army anyway. But they do start this process of negotiation. Which gives them time anyway. Every time Russia offers to negotiate, it's to buy them time. What's interesting is that Ivan offers the Polish king peace. He demands that the alliance between Livonia and Poland-Lithuania be terminated. But, and it's an important but, in exchange, he offers to drop any claims to Ukrainian lands, including Kiev. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. See? <laughs> exactly. Like, that's probably his biggest mistake here. Because if he put forward, like, a less suspiciously good proposal, Poland would probably have taken it more seriously and actually maybe have took the bait and actually tried to negotiate. But Poland is like, sure, of course. So it, it seems like they do pretend to participate in the negotiations, but they don't go anywhere. And while the negotiations last, Livonia, still being formally independent, just puts forward a statement that, no, they reject the terms completely. Russia uses this to just brutally conquer several more cities. That leaves Livonian leaders with pretty much no other options but to pull off the last diplomatic maneuver they have. They surrender their independence to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Just like you said, that's, that's what ends up happening. They place the land under the Lithuanian protection, so now this this becomes a huge wrench uh, into the gears of the Russian negotiations. Now that the lands belong to Lithuania, Russia can no longer continue essentially conquering them. Mm -hmm. The Treaty of Vilnia is signed on August 31st, 1559. Vilnia is a name for Vilnius. Yeah, that's... that's... The capital of modern Lithuania. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happened is that in the coming month, the uh, Grand Master that declined the 1554 Swedish proposal for an alliance is removed from his post. It's hard to imagine that Ivan, the very bad at basically everything, could foresee what would come of the fall of Livonia. It's less than a year into his campaign, and due to the lands essentially changing hands into the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Denmark and Sweden, they don't really swoop in, but see a lot of the documents that have been signed between powers like Denmark, Sweden, and Livonia suddenly becomes void because Livonia is no longer an independent state. So now the lines could be redrawn. Some of the lands that Livonian orders occupied, they occupied uh, from the permissions of Sweden and Denmark. And so Sweden and Denmark want those lands back. That is exactly what Russia wanted to avoid. Like the last thing they needed is the big guys to show up and uh, join the fight. Again. <laughs> yeah, the parallels. Russia doesn't want big guys to show up. <laughs> yeah. Um, can, you, can you imagine if uh, the city of Lviv suddenly went like, yeah, you know why we're going to re go rejoin Poland right now? In the middle of I'm, an artillery shelling I by Russians. You, half of Belarus is like up to join in Poland. For sure. Yeah. Ivan tries desperately to wiggle his way out of this hole that he dug for himself. 
the fact that if he were to con- to continue the conquest of the Ionian lands would actually put him at war with Denmark and Sweden, and that would give Denmark and Sweden the reasons to just sink any trade vessels coming into Russia, even around the Scandinavia. Uh, that's not what he wanted. Definitely not what he wanted. So he's worse off than he was before the start of the war. The port of Narva essentially becomes useless because... He cannot trade with anybody. Yeah, you control the port, but the waters are still Swedish and Danish. He hopes to settle everything with treaties. Big part of it was convincing Poland-Lithuania that the real enemy is the Crimean Hanat. And it's like, yeah, the, yeah, he pulls off that record and just like, like slams it. Really? Like you just made the country non-existent? Yeah. <laughs> and like, no, those guys are the real problem. Yeah, n- n- nobody... The guys on the south, look at them while I'm just chopping chunks of land into my country. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, 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 it's kind of like trying to amaze people by pulling the rabbit out of your head right after you like chainsawed a woman in half. And I'm not saying chainsawed in like a prestidigitation level where she can like still move her toss. I literally mean like just chainsaw a person in half and then be like, oh, look, a rabbit out of the head. And nobody's paying attention to that. <laughs> anyway, the plan to say that his diplomatic plans go poorly would be an understatement. Like, to give you a glimpse at how poorly those attempts to convince Poland to join him in a crusade against Crimean Hanat were, is that in 1559, Russia learned that Lithuanian actually convinced the Crimean Hanat to form an alliance against Russia. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the dumbest thing ever. It's like, hey, yeah, look, let's go beat those guys. Wait, why are those guys coming to beat me with you? Uh-huh. Um, Are you telling me Russia just invented whataboutism in fifteen fifty? Oh, Russia not just invented whataboutism. They've been using it in like their diplomacy for like the entire time at that point. Um, so basically destroying Livonia will be like, what about Crimean Tatars? Uh, yeah, Crimean Tatars are like, yeah, guys, we see. And they just they start raiding Lithuanian lands and just focus on Russia. <laughs> uh, and from Poland, Lith- uh, Lithuania... That is an attempt to stretch the front and kind of like force Russia to pull more forces down south. And so the negotiations that Russia is trying to pull get into a stalemate so bad that in 1560, Germany joins in an attempt to mediate these negotiations. I think the biggest problem here is that at this point, everybody Russia is talking to don't trust them at all like they know an empty sheet of paper is worth more than a document signed by russian tsar and this series of diplomatic failures lead to ivan ivan's conviction that everyone around him is incompetent because he doesn't actually do any of the negotiations himself he has diplomats for that Uh, he reshuffles his cabinet if you could call it that and decides that from now on He's the only one making policies regarding this situation. He decides to achieve a decisive and fast military victory. Essentially, take Kiev in three days. Well, not Kiev in this, in this case. He moves all of the reinforcements he can from the south, and he revokes the policy that the local people need to be treated well. He retakes Dorpat that has been returned by Livonian army in the meantime, 
And to give you an example of how brutal the conquest becomes, there is a print in a German document of the time. On the print, three naked women hanged from a tree branch are used by Russian archers for target practice with their children cut in half at their feet. Yeah, um, in case you couldn't like predict how that goes, there is no swift military victory here either. The following decade is spent by Ivan trying to conquer the rest of Livonia. Eventually, he gets into the lands that Denmark and Sweden had claims to. So Denmark and Sweden officially join the fight. And every time his armies struggle, he would initiate peace talks. He would try to stretch them long enough to strengthen his supply lines and bring in more reinforcement and then just continue the conquest. <laughs> the war became so important to him that he left the southern borders completely unprotected. And Crimean Tatars just got at it, De yeah, destroyed like lots of towns in the area. Just there's no military there. He didn't respond to any raids. It took Nordic states until 1583 to completely return all of the captured lands, including Dorpat and Narva, the first port to be captured by Russians and the one that's been completely useless for like 23 years at this point. Throughout all these years, Russia has been trying to put forward diplomacy with individual parties of the fight to like isolate them and prevent them from like joining forces and just attacking Russia all the time. You know how you could not be attacked by different forces? Get the fuck out of the land that does not belong to you. Would have been a sound advice, yeah. But essentially, after 24 years of bloodshed, Russia is left with nothing. None of the lands that they conquered remained in their control. The war lasted so long, it actually forced a lot of changes in the parties. Like, for example, Poland-Lithuania, from being still de facto a union of two independent countries, actually joined into one country because of that war. The diplomatic image of Russia has been completely destroyed. Uh, did they have an image? Well, England would talk to them. <laughs> England probably would continue to talk to them, no? Yeah, England was fine with like people yeah, committing they... genocides. Like, yeah. Come on. No, but uh, England stopped supplying Russia with uh, weapons because there was no suitable port. Essentially, the, oh, that was the reason, not the genocide. Of course, why wouldn't it? Russia would eventually reinitiate another war with Sweden, and they would capture the territory where now Saint Petersburg is. Oh, this is why Saint Petersburg is called the intellectual capital of Russia because it was stolen from Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, as you know, Russia cannot produce anything of its own. So the only thing, the only good things in Russia are yeah, the stolen ones. Yeah, which is fitting, you know, like the first Russian university appeared in St. Petersburg. Uh, yeah, that's, you don't need education. Like, what are you going to do, produce your own guns or something? Um, <laughs> Let's kill all the foxes and sell it to England. That's, that's yeah, I mean, that's a solid plan. That yeah. You can build an entire economy out of that. Can you imagine a country's only expert being the raw resources 
that are required by other more powerful countries around the globe? No. Can you imagine no. that? Can you imagine Russia's only source of high-end modern technologies being able to sell like stuff that would get other empires across the globe? In 2020, they will absolutely have something to export. They have to. Some product to export. Are you telling me they're not and, exporting and anything? Probably first, still. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, <laughs> for those of you who did not understand the reference, in 1550s, Russia could only export furs and tallow and like other the, like products yeah they exported things that were on top of the land now yeah. they exporting only things that are inside the land natural, like gas natural gas <laughs> and oil and and, oil. And, and and that's about it but in in 1550s in return what they could buy were english guns in 2022 they can buy french electronics that they can put in their rockets because otherwise mm. their rockets wouldn't fly yeah um, Thank you, friends. Yeah. Merci. <laughs> I didn't know what to call this episode because in this episode, Russia didn't manage to steal anything. Like after 24 years of bloodshed, they ended up with literally the same borders that they had at the beginning of the war. Did they went to prison for armed robbery at least? Who, Russia? Yeah, there were sanctions, nothing, no consequences. San I mean, they, yeah, they, they became isolated. Weren't yeah. they isolated before? Well, only because the port was kept freezing. This is the episode where Russia didn't manage to steal anything. Thank you for listening. And to the best of your ability, avoid being neighbors with Russia.